Hey everyone, it's David. It is my pleasure to announce a very special episode today. Today's episode will be hosted by the Medicine and Machine Learning Club's brand new co-president, Madeline Ahern. It will be produced by our club's new marketing chair, Melanie Busson. These are two very talented individuals who will soon be taking the reins of our student group. I think Mammal is in good hands and I am excited to see what they do with it. This is Maddie's first interview. I think she did a great job. Enjoy! Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, brought to you by the students of the University of Minnesota Medical School. I'm your host, Madeline Ahern, and my guest is Dr. Neka Comfer, a dermatologist and dermapathologist at the Mayo Clinic. In today's episode, we talk about Dr. Comfer's road to dermatology and her discovery of the uses of AI in medicine. We also talk about the beauty of the world of visual medicine and the use of pattern recognition for dermatologists and machines alike. We also discuss the prevention of burnout and ways to stay enthusiastic about your work. There's so many important takeaways from this interview, and I hope you all enjoy. Hello, everyone. Today, my guest is Dr. Neka Comfer, a dermatologist and dermapathologist from the Mayo Clinic in our home state of Minnesota. Dr. Comfer, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to, to meet with you today and learn a little bit uh, about some of the work you've been doing in the podcast that you've uh, put out already. It's really exciting field and topic. And before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What was your road to dermatology like? And how did you get interested in artificial intelligence and machine learning? That's a really, really good question. I've often, I often from time to time will reflect on sort of my journey and how um, unclear that was thinking back to when I was a medical student. But, you know, I think once, once I made the decision to, um, to go to medical school, um, I really loved every bit about medicine. I, I loved my medical rotations and the medical specialty rotations. I loved my surgical rotations. So, uh, you know, I, I had a hard time settling on a specialty that I wanted to do. But one thing I did know for certain was that the, was the way I learned. I'm very much a pattern visual sort of kind of a learner. And I, I love pictures. I love looking for patterns in pictures. And that always kind of came very naturally to me. But I don't think I ever thought seriously about dermatology. And it wasn't because I knew much about it. I just, you know, in medical school, dermatology relative to some of the other specialties really kind of got short shrift in terms of the, how, you know, the amount of exposure you got to it. And it wasn't, I believe it was maybe my third year and I was looking for electives. And I had some friends who were in dermatology programs and they're like, you should do dermatology, you know, do a rotation. And so I did a rotation and it was incredible. It was like my eyes were open for the first time. And up until then, everything that had to do with diagnosing, you know, disorders of any kind and that relied on a physical exam or additional adjunctive diagnostic tests in dermatology was totally different because you could see, you could see what you were describing, what you were examining. You could, you could use the power of language to describe the morphologic features of a lesion. Um, and I found that absolutely just fascinating. And then there were all these patterns that when they came together, you could start to 
put you know disorders into diagnostic categories it just made sense to me Amazing. That's really cool. So the pattern recognition piece, I think that's really interesting that you mentioned that because that's a lot of what we talk about when we talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning. When you were thinking about dermatology for the first time, was that really on your radar at all? Not at all. I, I, you know, I, I knew as much as the next person, the average person, really. Um, I think back then, you know, artificial intelligence was not necessarily something that you heard in the medical environment. Um, certainly the everyday things we used probably employed more AI, artificial intelligence than we were even talking about or seeing in, you know, in the medical field. And it really wasn't until I would say maybe over the past five years or so that you really start to feel like there's this burgeoning interest in, in AI, People are talking about it more, talking about how it applies in their various different you know, medical specialties and thinking about problems that we encounter every day in clinical practice and starting to think about AI solutions potentially to those problems. Absolutely. And in our last episode, we talked a little bit about dermatology and how it's really a specialty that has a lot to gain from machine learning. And I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with dermatology, but maybe haven't heard of dermapathology before. And I know that's part of something that you're interested in. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So the same fascination I had for dermatology, clinical dermatology, I have for dermatopathology and because I think it's really an extension. It extends your ability to see beyond what you're able to recognize with the naked eye when you look at lesions on the skin and allows you to see them at, at the level of the, you know, at a light microscopy level. So as a, as a dermatologist and dermatopathologist, I have the unique privilege of being able to care for patients in the clinical setting, in, the, in my outpatient clinic, and interpret skin biopsies under the microscope. So I describe lesions grossly with the naked eye, and then under the microscope, I'm able to draw on microscopic features that allow me to put all the pieces together to come up with a diagnosis. So that's what I do every day and you know, in dermatopathologies, I make diagnoses based off of skin biopsy specimens. And, and so in, in a lot of ways, it's really just like uh, pattern recognition because you, know, you, you recognize that there are a variety of, uh, you know, there are a range of diagnoses you can render and there are unique sets of histologic patterns that you're able to recognize under the microscope that allow you to categorize disorders in, in different groups. And it's not just what you see under the microscope, but you're also, what I love about it is you're drawing information from the clinical sphere. So everything from the way the lesions look clinically, the history the patient provided, how the lesions have evolved over time, you're bringing all of that to bear when, you're, when you provide your interpretation under the microscope. Absolutely. So that's a lot of data that you're integrating into one patient. Do you think AI has the capacity to do that in the future? That's a fantastic question. And um, it's really early days yet, but we do know that um, obviously in dermatology, dermatology is such an image intense specialty. Um, you're dealing with, you know, dermatoscopic images, which are really zoomed up views of, you know, of a lesion. You're dealing also with just gross clinical images, just photographic images of, of lesions and rashes. But you're also dealing with digital pathology. So 
we are in a phase now where a lot of practices, including Mayo, is embarking on a really ambitious initiative to digitize our pathology practice. So, so that we're able to now render diagnoses based off of not analog you know, slides, but off of a, whole, a digitized whole slide image. And what that means is now we have huge amounts of data because when you think of the amount of data contained in one slide, it's, you know, it's really, really large relative, you know, to just a clinical photo or dermatoscopic image. So um, that's going to be a challenge uh, for AI, certainly challenging for the human mind to compute, right, and make, and make sense of and identify patterns within those images or pictures. But if anybody can do it, our, you know, a, a good, strong, you know, a computer program or an algorithm could be trained, right, to glean the relevant pieces from these large amounts of data. And so I think that's where the future lies as we start to digitize our images and make them available in these huge data sets is that we can now start to train algorithms to say, okay, what are the patterns that maybe I as a clinician or pathologist am not able to to even see, maybe the algorithm can start to glean those relevant features, those things that uh, we can't necessarily recognize uh, with our human eye, but that, uh, but that an algorithm can. Yeah, absolutely. And so as you kind of talk a little bit about like the future and kind of what the future looks like for AI and dermatology, I, I want to mention to our listeners that last year, your team published uh, kind of a two-part series in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. And you focus on the fundamentals and current applications of deep learning in dermatology. And you kind of look a little bit at future directions too. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And more specifically, what were your main takeaways from writing that article? Yeah, so that, you know, the basic point of that article was to say, okay, basically what I've told you is, you know, really recognizing that AI was assuming more and more prominence uh, in medicine and particularly within image intense specialties like radiology, um, like cardiology, cardiovascular imaging, uh, neurology, and knowing the value of images and pattern recognition in our specialty and realizing that, listen, we are actually ripe, dermatology is ripe for this kind of technology to really transform how we diagnose a disease in our specialty, how we can even predict, potentially predict outcomes uh, using the data that we have. And so the point of the paper was really to provide a nice comprehensive summary for the practicing dermatologist and to present some basic foundational principles of deep learning to the practicing dermatologists to help them understand the underpinnings of this new set of methods. And then that was part one. And then in part two, we wanted to describe some of the early applications of deep learning in dermatology and dermatopathology for, uh, again, from the perspective of a practicing dermatologist, because we really didn't want AI, deep learning, machine learning to be this sort of abstract concept out there. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot, people, there's a lot of fear associated with, with artificial <laughs> intelligence. I think Definitely. it's mainly because people don't know a lot about it, you know, and they think, oh my gosh, is it going to take away our jobs? Are we going to be replaced by computers? Um, and 
the, the, this effort was really trying to say, listen, these are the basic foundational principles of deep learning and artificial intelligence. And these are the kinds of questions that AI has been employed to solve in our specialty. And, and these are some of the other types of questions that we can think about as dermatologists using AI to help make our jobs easier and more efficient and more accurate and ultimately make the care we provide for our patients better. Absolutely. And, and that was one thing I really liked about your guys' article. In fact, I think you mentioned uh, some studies where dermatologists and artificial intelligence were kind of compared head on. Um, and in a lot of cases, it seems like uh, these, and I think you guys call them deep neural networks, actually perform better than the physicians. And so to me, it seems like this could be seen as a challenge. You know, you said you mentioned that part of our culture is to be fearful of the machines making our jobs obsolete. But what I really like is you guys put a kind of a positive spin on it. You say, you know, automation of your work allows you to do better analysis of clinical data and kind of frees you up to do the higher order uh, medical decision making. So do you think that most dermatologists would share that sentiment? I certainly hope so. You know, it's like I said, it's really, it's a new field for us, you know, dermatologists. It's certainly not something many of us have been thinking about for very long. So it'll take us a while to, to gain some degree of comfort um, with what it all means and how it may transform or change the work that we're doing right now. I think, you know, if you think back, you know, to any major technology uh, that permeates any field, initially you'll have early adopters, people who maybe know a little bit more about it or have sought additional information and have learned enough about it and are excited about, you know, integrating it into their work. And then there are others where it's just going to take time. It's going to take time for them to gain uh, more knowledge about it. Maybe, maybe the problems that they, you know, that we all have or that they encounter in practice, and it'll take them seeing how that tool or method or technology actually helps to improve their work for them to really come on board. So I think we'll all progress through this. There'll be varying rates of adoption initially, but ultimately I really think the future lies in this, you know, with machine learning playing some sort of a role in supporting the decisions we make in medicine, not just in dermatology, but in medicine overall, um, and helping us provide even broader access. That's the other thing, you know, the dermatologists are few and far between. Absolutely. And there are definitely pockets of our society that don't have the kind of access that we would like to see to dermatology. And I really see this as democratizing access to specialty dermatology care for populations that ordinarily would not have access. Well, and in previous years, we've seen, you know, we've heard of a dermatology shortage. And more recently, what I've heard is, you know, there's a, a misallocation of dermatologists. So I, I'm centered right now in the Twin Cities. Uh, you're at Mayo Clinic. Both are kind of hubs of medicine and research. But, you know, around us, Minnesota is a, has a large rural community. And uh, you, you wonder if AI could potentially kind of bridge the gap in terms of those people getting access to care. Absolutely, that's a fantastic point that you've made is this misallocation of you know, dermatologic expertise across the country with rural communities uh, really 
suffering from not having sufficient access to that kind of specialty care. And, uh, you know, that's where a lot of our telemedicine models or teledermatology models come into play. But even leveraging AI um, to be that sort of initial screen potentially, or even just supplement, um, you know, and support the work of primary care practitioners out in the community who may have limited dermatologic expertise, but they're really bearing the, the burden of, you know, providing that care for their local communities. Can we deploy AI assistive uh, solutions to provide some triaging, for, for example, to help them identify what lesions or what patients maybe need specialty dermatologic face-to-face -face care versus which ones are best uh, served uh, in, in my specific practice. So I think that there are lots of applications for AI, both in hubs of excellence and large academic centers, but also in terms of broadening access to specialty care for underserved populations. Absolutely. And something I thought was interesting, I, I recently attended a uh, dermoscopy lecture and uh, was hearing about the different types of dermatoscopes. And one of, I can't remember what company is it is, but there's a company out there that has a um, more commercially available dermatoscope that attaches to a person's phone. And if, you know, a, a, that could be paired with AI might provide a gap in that care, especially like you said, rural communities, um, people with le less access to healthcare, so. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we're so comfortable with AI in our daily lives. I mean, we, we use all kinds of apps in our phone that allow us to, to navigate the world around us. Um, it isn't that far of a leap to think about how we might apply those in medicine too, so. Yeah. So jumping back to your article, uh, one thing I thought was really interesting is you mentioned that only 41% of uh, published articles involving dermatology and AI are published by actual dermatologists. Why do you think that that is? <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, it comes back to just the fact that, um, a lot of the technical experts in this field probably see the applications of AI in dermatology specifically better than those of us in the field do right now. <laughs> yeah, that's really, you know, I, th I really think it's, it really boils down to that is that it's take, it's going to take the practicing dermatologists a while to get to the point where they have enough sort of basic understanding of what AI, you know, deep learning, machine learning is, and then to understand, okay, these are the problems I'm encountering in my practice right now. Um, and, oh, right, AI might provide a solution to address those problems. So I, I really think it comes down to just that knowledge, having that awareness of um, what AI might have to offer offer our field. And then once, once everyone or most of us in the specialty have a basic understanding of artificial intelligence, then you'll start to see people asking questions and seeking solutions in that space to solve those problems that they're encountering. But right now, it's still quite early, frankly, I think. But it'll come. I'm optimistic about that. So you have stood out in your field among dermatologists as someone who likes AI and is seeing the future potential for AI. How, how did you, you know, start your um, kind of journey into learning about AI? Did you use any certain resources or anything? 
Yeah, you know, I thought about, I, I, I think, because I'm not a techie person, my husband. I'm not either. <laughs> so it's not because I have this wonderful uh, affinity uh, for technology, but I think it really comes down to this visual part that I love that drew me to dermatology in the first place. I, I think dermatology is one of those medical specialties that isn't very quantitative. It's very much a qualitative specialty. And when I say that, I'm not saying we don't generate quantitative data. I'm just saying that when you look at all the data we gather and analyze and you know pick apart in dermatology and work with, most of it is very much uh, image-based. It's very much based on your ability to visualize something, a picture, whatever it might be, whether it's digital or you know, in, you know, on the patient, describe it in, in language. So you're using words to describe, and, and the description of things really helps you to start to put it into diagnost a diagnostic category. And same thing happens in dermatopathology. You're talking about images or patterns that you recognize by looking at slides either under the microscope or digital pathology images. So it's a very image rich area. And the evolution of tools just in, not just in medicine, but outside of medicine that allows us to analyze that kind, those kinds of images is really what drew me to AI. Because up until then, it's precisely as I described, a lot of the interpretation was based on your ability to glean features from you know, looking at images. And um, AI now affords us an ability to take it to a, another level because now you have all these images and you can actually train algorithms to recognize features within those algorithms, right? And put it together to come up with, to do essentially what I do you know, what a dermatologist does to a certain extent. So that, that drew me, that ability of AI to draw a, I'll just say a quantitative picture from a qualitative image. And my technical partners might cringe at my description, <laughs> but I'm coming at it from a practitioner standpoint, because that's what I am, is I'm a clinician and a pathologist. So I think I see AI as bridging that gap between qualitative and quantitative so that we can actually start to make sense of the image-based data. I'm not sure. No, Does that, that make sense? That makes complete sense. I think that's a really kind of a great overview of, you know, how, why dermatology and why AI fits so well together and kind of how a person can overcome those barriers to entry in AI. And something I also want to bring up is that you mentioned in your article is another barrier to kind of the widespread and accurate use of AI is you say the, the lack of a large labeled dermatologic image data set. And yeah, I see you make a face when I say that because I've heard that in a lot of cases for AI. So in your opinion, where should these data sets come from? And also another big question that a lot of people are talking about is how do we ensure that these data sets are representative of a variety of skin colors, ages, uh, pathologies, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Those are two very important questions. And I think the biggest barrier in dermatology to advancing, you know, work in AI or applying AI more broadly to some of the common uh, questions that arise in our specialty is going to be the data sets we're able to, 
use to train these algorithms because you need you need a a good set of data that's you know been curated that's accurately labeled and annotated and we have not there's there really isn't a good standard for how one acquires an image how you label it how you annotate it so any single academic institution for example can draw on its own image data bank but even, even an institution like ours, we learned very early on that we've got rich troves of data dating back decades that we've gathered just in the course of practice, right? But when you look back at those images, you know, there really isn't a clear standard approach that's been employed to label that data, you know, to annotate it, to make sure that the quality is up to snuff you know, for an algorithm that you might want to train. And I think this is a problem that's not unique to my institution, but actually that others and in other institutions are dealing with. So I really think academic institutions are, are going to have to kind of lead the charge to say, okay, can we standardize, first of all, what kinds of data categories do we generate in our specialty? And can we standardize how we acquire those, that data in the course of practice, because that's the biggest thing as well. You know, people want to run an efficient practice. And sometimes in order to get the data in, in as high as enough quality for it to, to be useful downstream, that takes time. So how do you integrate data acquisition in the course of your day-to-day -day seeing patients and caring for patients so that yes, you're acquiring it for clinical purposes, but you can also use it to answer relevant clinical questions. And, and that's one big question that I think academic institutions are probably best geared to answer and to help the rest of the specialty make uh, significant progress in is really standardizing how we acquire images and annotate them. And then with regard to, you know, are the images, for example, are the images fully representative of the patient populations we serve? That's important as well, because any algorithm you create is going to reflect the data that was used to train it. And so if that data is skewed in any way, or if there's any uh, bias in that data, you're just going to you know, push that forward into the algorithms and then perpetuate that bias when that, those algorithms are applied to other clinical scenarios. So I really think the responsibility lies with the specialty to make sure that that the images or that the data we're feeding into these algorithms is broadly representative of the patient populations we seek to serve. And that's a responsibility borne by the specialists in the field. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I, I think we hear a lot of the times the phrase, uh, you know, data doesn't lie, but you know, we're fallible humans and uh, we're making these data sets, they are of our creation. And so I think it's definitely a concern that we aren't uh, encoding our own bias into these data sets. And um, there are lots of examples already and non-medical examples too of um, where bias has been encoded into uh, data sets. I think I saw something about um, jury duty selection and how uh, there isn't proper representation because AI is being used to select who should perform jury duty and it's, you know, the, the uh, encoding wasn't done well. And so then you see all these downstream effects that you could never have anticipated, um, all because of that imperfect coding to begin with. 
Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that the good thing is we're having discussions about this now. You know, uh, I think people are recognizing that, oh, yeah, you know, as humans, you know, we all have biases, conscious and unconscious biases, but the data we collect and the way we collect that data can, um, can be an extension of the biases we hold. And so being careful about understanding the questions we're seeking to answer. And then when we train algorithms, making sure that the data that we feed into those algorithms is, you know, broadly representative of, um, you know, of the, of the questions that were, of the populations that would be impacted by those questions we're seeking to answer. Absolutely. So as we're looking towards the future, we like to ask these uh, questions of all of our guests. Um, and my first one for you is, what do you think the future of AI and medicine is going to look like in 10 to 20 years? Uh, do you think you'll be using AI in your clinical practice? And what about your colleagues? Yeah, I think that I, I have tend to have a very optimistic outlook on this. I would say that in 10 to 20 years, I would expect that um, AI will have an increasingly assistive role in practice. Um, in fact, it might, we may not even recognize in a lot of instances that we are relying on, um, on AI to support the decisions we might make, whether it's you know, on diagnosis, treatment selection, whether it's even, even operational things like scheduling, uh, matching up patients with the, you know, with the right clinician at the right time. Um, I think AI will play an increasingly assistive role. I still see the human, so the specialist, as being central to provision of patient-centered humanistic care. That will, I don't see that going away. In fact, I see that relationship and our ability to provide that kind of care being enriched by the supportive role that AI will play in practice. So that's, um, that's what I think AI in medicine, at least in dermatology specifically, will look like, and, and certainly in, in medicine broadly. Yeah. So as I see uh, AI kind of performing an assistive role, a lot of people have had the concern that AI is kind of a black box, meaning you put the data in, uh, you get kind of your analysis out, but you don't really have any uh, rationale versus you know, when we're physicians in training, and I'm a first year medical student, they ask us for a rationale. Why do you think that this is the cause? Do you worry at all that AI is missing that piece? I mean, I would say yes, I do worry about that. Um, again, I'm not a technical AI expert, so um, I kind of would rely on my technical colleagues to to help us understand perhaps what things is the algorithm queuing into in the data to output, you know, whatever, whatever answer it's coming up with. And I, I actually think that it's critical for the practitioner to understand the physician, to understand what the algorithm is paying attention to. And you've probably seen reports, for example, of algorithms that queue into images that have you know, uh, pigmented lesions that have rulers attached to them and assigning a malignant grade to those versus those that don't. And, you know, I, I, so I think it's, it's important in the training of these algorithms to understand how they're arriving at the answer. I don't know that we'll always be able to break that down and understand fully 
what goes into the final product, but to the extent that we can, we should always try to, to understand what the algorithms are queuing into. And it's not that it's a complete black box. I think based on what I know about the AI algorithms, you can understand to a certain extent what, you know, what they're paying attention to uh, when they're coming up with the, with the, with the answer. But um, I don't know that it's gonna be as fully transparent as we might like. Absolutely. So one of the things that I think is really cool about the work that you're doing is, you know, you're working with AI, but you're also in clinical practice and, you know, still actively doing dermatology. Uh, what, what is up next for you in terms of both dermatology and uh, AI in medicine? Well, first of all, I just want to really recognize my my co-colleague and my co-director, actually, we have an office for AI in dermatology at the Mayo Clinic. Um, and it's across all the enterprise Mayo Clinic. The office serves all of our campuses across you know, the states, Arizona, Florida, and the Midwest. Uh, Dennis Murphy, uh, he's a PhD and he is my technical partner. And, and then we have a whole team of clinicians and surgeons and dermatopathologists from across the clinic, the Mayo Clinic Dermatology Department, who are have a vested interest in AI and are very interested in pursuing a whole host of different projects and we work collaboratively. Um, so I, I just wanted to make sure I, I mentioned my team because I don't work by myself. And I think one thing Dennis and I would tell you is that for us to be successful, for any team uh, to be successful in this space requires a close partnership between a technical expert and a clinical expert. Because I am firmly footed in the practice, I understand the questions that are relevant to ask. I understand the challenges we're encountering in practice. And then Dennis understands the technical piece. What are the, what can AI, what portions of the problem can AI be deployed to solve? And when the algorithm spits out an output, does it make sense clinically? You know, um, I don't think we, we wanna be in the position where we're simply adopting whatever categories or classifications uh, an algorithm might deliver to us. We want to make sure it makes clinical sense based on what we know about disease pathophysiology, based on what we know about treatment and the course of diseases and how they respond or, or don't respond. So, so I really think it's a close partnership between both uh, individuals, the technical experts and the clinical experts to move this uh, forward in, uh, in dermatology. Um, and then your specific, I don't know if I answered your question, but. No, I, I think you got it. And as a follow-up, I'd be kind of curious to hear about, you know, medical students and um, medical trainees. We spend a lot of time in the clinic. We spend a lot of time in the library. We spend a lot of time with people like ourselves learning the same kind of stuff that we're learning. So how do you seek out these partnerships with people from different backgrounds? Um, I think that in the natural setup of a practice, you will, there are multiple different individuals in different professions that have different areas of expertise that you draw on, you know, to, to, to collaborate with um, and to work on projects together. I think specifically in, with AI, um, people like Dennis Murphy, who are, you know, AI scientists or data, and then also data scientists or data analysts, um, biostatisticians and what have you, 
um, play a, a very, very important role in supporting the work that we do in this space and become important uh, members of, of a research team. I think the clinicians are a very important piece as well. And so pulling them in uh, and engaging them is gonna be important so that we make sure we're focusing on the right problems. Um, and then other members of the healthcare team from the allied health group, our nursing staff, our advanced practice providers, our trainees, medical students, residents, our fellows. Um, I really think that if we wanna solve problems that are going to be of relevance for our specialty, we have to fully engage all the members of the healthcare team that are involved in the care of, of those patients. So, Absolutely. So you're hoping to see that 41% number uh, increase a little, I imagine. I would love, I would absolutely <laughs> love to see that because I want us to be proactive. I want us to be proactive about defining how AI plays a role in our specialty in the future, you know? Absolutely. So I'd love to see that. Yeah. That's a great goal to have for the future. Mm -hmm. Okay. So some final questions for you. And uh, I always love this section of our show because it's uh, very actionable. Uh, we love to hear as students, and I think a lot of our listeners are just lifelong learners too, uh, from people who are passionate about what they do, and that certainly seems to be you. So that said, uh, what advice would you give to yourself in your 20s if you could go back in time and uh, impart some wisdom? Boy, I think if I would go back in time, you know, when I think back to being a medical student, there was always this eagerness to figure out, well, what am I going to specialize in? What am I going to do? You know, um, and I would probably settle in. I would say settle in, expose yourself to as much as as broad of multiple areas as you can. Expose yourself to multiple specialties, not just in medicine, but also related specialties that you know have applications in medicine. Like so, AI. If AI were a thing back then that might have been something I would have taken availed myself of. I would like to think I might have availed myself of that experience of either working with another team or doing some research with, with uh, a team that was working in that space. So I think exposing broad exposure to multiple different fields, both within medicine and fields that interface with medicine will help you get a broader perspective of the field as a whole and also help refine in your mind what area your skills and talents are best suited for. You know, I think that's probably the most important thing because when I think about how I landed on dermatology, it felt completely by chance. You know, if I hadn't done that elective, I may never have known. What, what were you looking at uh, before you decided on dermatology? What was your road like? I was looking at OB-GYN okay. and because I just loved my, it's one of those, I loved everything that I did, but OB-GYN really stuck with me because I, I think it's one of those situations where you work with someone or a set of people who love what they do, you know, and it makes you want to do that. But I also just loved this, the diseases that they diagnosed. I loved the gynecologic surgery. I love delivering babies. I just loved everything about it. And um, yeah, that was, that was the field that I had considered seriously before I did my rotation in dermatology. 
Well, that's really cool. I, I always love to hear that because so many of our listeners are medical students and it's a, pr a pretty common theme among first and second years to be undecided and concerned about being undecided because there's there's always a few people that are dead set on something. So, you know, it's nice to hear that there are people that are happy with what they do and are successful and didn't know for sure when they were first starting out. Absolutely. Yeah. Give yourself time and don't put that pressure on yourself. Just <laughs> I think just let it happen. It'll, you'll figure it out. You will. Yeah. Yeah. That said, um, do you have any advice for med students or early career physicians about, it can be either about medicine or just about life? Oh boy. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I threw a big one on you. Yeah. I think, I think, um, I would say that medicine is, um, it's a remarkable field. It's, um, it's a calling in a lot of ways. It's, it offers a lot of fulfillment because you, you have the privilege of being part of someone's life for maybe a brief period of time, maybe several years, you know, longitudinally. And that is so special. And it doesn't matter in what capacity. You could be walking into a room in a clinic, taking care of a patient. You could be on the wards in the inpatient service, caring for a patient. You could be um, a surgeon doing surgery. You know, you could be a pathologist looking at a, a slide of a biopsy from a patient. Um, you could be a radiologist looking at images. And I really just think it, it's just this privilege, this of seeing and being part of a slice of, of a person's life. So I find that incredibly fulfilling. And you see it in the eyes of medical students when they come in and, and you know, you hear a lot about burnout and what have you in our field. And I really think that happens for a variety of reasons. I, I have no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't wanna paint a picture like I have the answer to burnout, but I really think when we start to lose touch with what drew us into the specialty in the first place into the field, that's when we, become more susceptible to some of the things like burnout and the frustrations and what have you. And I, you know, I think at the end of the day, if we can maintain our connection to, you know, to that, that centered notion of this relationship we have, we can create with the patient and this opportunity to be part of their lives for a period of time and, and, and to share in the joys and the sorrows associated with um, providing care and managing, um, you know, managing diagnoses is, is just a special thing and holding on to that for as long as you can. And even, you know, we all lose our way at times, but trying to reconnect and find that connection once again to what offered fulfillment and what drew us to the specialty is gonna be key. And that'll keep you feeling fulfilled in your career in the long term irrespective of where you end up. And prevent that pesky burnout, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's fantastic. So, Do you have any parting words for our listeners? Well, um, I just think, you know, we're all learners. It doesn't matter whether you're a medical student or whether you're at the, you know, your mid-career or late-career faculty and everything in between. I think that Artificial intelligence, which is the topic of this podcast, machine learning, is definitely a new area for all of us. I don't feel, I'm not, I'm far from an expert in it, but I'm an eager learner. 
And I want to learn as much as I can about every tool, method, technology out there that can help me provide better care to my patients. And ultimately that's what motivates me. And so I guess what I would leave with, the, with your um, audience is just embracing the notion of being the, the constant learner and being excited about learning new things and embracing them. And uh, I think that's what we'll need in medicine and in dermatology to, um, you know, to, to continue to move our specialty forward. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up our interview today. Uh, Dr. Comfer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely.